Wonderful. We are going to start. It is so lovely to see you. Welcome to the theology track, uh, which is obviously the best track. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. Um, it is so lovely to see each of you this evening. Thank you for coming along. I, I, the first thing I want to say right at the start is what do we mean by the theology track? Okay. I mean, hopefully we are going to be looking at the Bible. Uh, we are. Um, hopefully what we're going to be doing is not sort of some dry academic thing, but is relevant to life. Uh, so what, how is the theology track different uh, to the Bible track or the life track? Uh, let me just try and explain. In, in essence, when you look at the Bible, uh, if you like, there are two ways of doing it. There's um, looking at it in order. So uh, if you were here at either of the service, at any service um, last Sunday, let's say the 6 p.m. service, Tim was preaching on Habakkuk. Uh, he preached on Habakkuk 1. Uh, next Sunday, he's going to preach on Habakkuk 2. He's going through it in order. That's one way of doing it. That's what's going to be happening in the Bible track. They're going through a bit of Mark's gospel, and they're going through it in order like that. Uh, in the theology track, we're doing something slightly different. We are looking at the Bible systematically. So what we're going to try and do is we're going to take a theme and investigate what does the whole Bible say about that theme? What does the whole Bible tell us about a given theme or a given topic? And uh, when we do that over the next uh, six Wednesday evenings, um, what I would love is um, to do that in a certain way. Wayne Grudem's got a book called Systematic Theology. It's a big, fat, sort of chunky book, uh, and it's got loads of information in it. But right at the start, he says, when you do theology, do it like this. And he says five things. These are the five things he says. He says, do it with prayer. Uh, so we say, Lord, please help us as we do it. Uh, he says, do it with humility. So God give God gives grace to the humble. He says, do it with reason, just like Jamie was talking about. God gives us our minds. He gives us our brains, our intellects to use, not to throw out the window. Uh, he says, do it with help from others. I may be speaking tonight, um, but other people are speaking on other nights, and we can all help each other. Uh, and uh, I certainly have been helped as I've been preparing this by, by lots of other people, the books that they've written, uh, the talks that I've heard. So with, do we do it with help from others? We don't do it as a solo effort. And we do it with rejoicing and praise. That's why we started this evening with worship, and we will end the evening with worship as well. So I'm going to pray to start with, and um, I'm going to pray. We're going to come back to it a little bit later. Um, there, will be, there are Bibles on the end of the pews. Hopefully some, some of you have probably got Bibles on your phones and things like that. Bibles, Bible passages are going to come up there. But if you like looking at something, there are Bibles on the end of the rows. They are the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, which may not be the version you have at home. Uh, you may have NIV, you may have it on your phone. So do get things out so you can look at it as well if you want. I think that would probably be helpful. We're going to look at lots of different Bible verses. Um, but um, uh, let me just pray um, Psalm 19. Uh, psalm 19 is a, a psalm we're going to come back to. Uh, a little later, but let me just pray the last verse of Psalm, Psalm 19. You'll probably know it well. It's a famous verse, and I'm just going to pray that for us now as we start. Psalm 19, verse 14. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, we're thinking about things topically. What topic does one choose on the first evening of a six-week theology session? You know, there's all sorts of different ways you could start. You could go, well, let's, the first session, let's start at creation. The first thing that happened, let's look at creation. You could say, well, let's look at Jesus. Jesus is the center of our faith, so the first thing of all we'll do is we'll look at the person of Jesus on the first session. 
But actually what we're going to do this evening, I'd love us to look at the Bible, look at God's Word, because obviously everything we know about Jesus, we know through the Bible. And we worship a triune God. We worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do for the first three weeks of this, we're going to look at each person of the Trinity in turn and ask, try and answer three of the most fundamental questions that any one of us can look to answer. And these are the questions. You'll see them come up there. Firstly, where does the gospel come from? So where does the, the good news, where does the message of Christianity, where does it come from? Where, what's its origin? Secondly, what does the gospel consist of? What's its content? And then thirdly, how does the gospel become effective in our lives? How does the good news of the message of Jesus, how does it actually become effective in our lives? And we'll look at that by looking at a person of the Trinity each week. So this week, the revelation of the Father. Uh, Next week, the cross of Christ. Third week, the ministry of the Spirit. Because where does the gospel come from? It's the revelation of the Father. What does the gospel consist of? At its heart, the cross of Christ. How does the gospel become effective in your life and my life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit? So that's what we're going to spend the first three sessions, the first three Wednesdays doing. And then in the second three weeks, we're going to look at three sort of more common topics that people often want to grapple with and think through. We're going to think about suffering. We're going to think about uh, God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. What do we mean by that? And we're going to think about eternity, heaven and hell. So, tonight, we are thinking about the Bible, and hopefully you've all got one of these handouts, Uh, and I think it is a good place to start to be thinking about the Bible. You think about the main um, debates, the main disagreements uh, that happen amongst Christians, that happen in the church today, uh, whatever it might be, sexuality, remarriage, women teaching men, evangelism versus social action, baptism, heaven and hell, other religions, whatever it might be. Actually, when you actually look at those arguments, when you look at those debates and you boil it down, at the bottom of it is a debate about authority. Where do we get our authority from? How do we know the truth about God and what does he think on things? By by what authority do you or I believe what we believe? And to answer this, what I want us to try and do is to think about a number of words. And here's the first word I'd love us to think a little bit about. The first word is the word revelation. Revelation. Imagine for a moment you were an ant, okay? Imagine you were an ant and you wanted to get to know a human being. How would you do it? Obviously, it would be impossible for you, a little ant, to get to know a massive human being. You can't speak to the human. You can't comprehend them. They are so massive, it's impossible. And in an even more significant way, we can't get to know God in our own strength and our own efforts. By our own researching, by our own resources, we can't do it. God is infinite. We are finite. And on top of that, God is holy and we are sinful. We are finite. You and I, we are finite and we are fallen And therefore, there is a barrier between us and God. It is impossible for us in our own strength to get to know God. He is incomprehensible. He is inaccessible to us if we are just trying to do it in our own strength. Just like the ant with the human. And so the only way that we can get to know God is if God reveals himself to us. Revelation. And of course, the wonderful truth is that God has done just that. 
It's written, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10 says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. God reveals to us. And uh, in the Bible, there are four different types of revelation that are spoken of, and I'd just love to quickly go through those to begin with. First one is general revelation. General revelation. Sometimes people call that natural revelation. So up on the screen is going to come, I prayed from the end of Psalm 19 at the uh, the start, Uh, up on the screen is going to come a bit from Psalm 19 verses 1 to 6. You can turn there if you want, or you can read it up there. Uh, But just look at how this is talking about God's general revelation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of all the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So in there, it's saying something about just the the natural revelation of God. Just as we look around this world, as we look at creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. Just all people, naturally, God has revealed something to us as we just look around this world. We look around this world, and and the heavens declare the glory of God. Let's take a a New Testament passage. Look at Romans coming up here. Uh, Romans 1, verses 19 and 20 uh, says this. Paul's writing to the Romans. He says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And do you see there again, he's saying exactly the same idea, that just as we look around this world, as we look at creation, it tells us something about God. God has revealed something of himself to us, his eternal power, his divine nature. As we look at this world, we go, there is a divine nature, uh, there is an eternal power, and that is God. God has revealed something of himself uh, to us. So that is general revelation, natural revelation. It shows us that God exists, and and it is revealed to all people. So Paul says, so that people are without excuse. His power, his divinity, we can see it. But the problem is that general revelation can't save us. General revelation cannot save us. It can only, if you like, condemn us. That's what Paul's saying in that verse. It can't save us, but it can only condemn us. So we can see God's glory in general revelation. As we look at this world, we can see God's glory, but actually you and I, we need to see God's grace too. It's great to see God's glory as we look at creation, as we look at amazing landscape, whatever it might be. It's great to see God's glory, but we need to see God's grace too, and we can't see God's grace just by looking around at creation. And so we need a different type of revelation. And that is the second type of revelation. That is, if you like, special revelation or supernatural revelation. So just imagine now uh, that you're not an ant, but you are a human, okay? Um, And you're watching a whole line of ants. And you're watching a whole line of ants as ants do. They, you know, they collect food and they, they very cleverly all go in a little line and they take their food to some their home, wherever it is. Now, imagine you actually like ants, which I don't. I think they're horrible, but there we go. But, um, and the ants are all taking their food 
uh, to their home, which is a bit of ground that you are about to have to dig up. Okay, you're about to destroy their home, and you want to be able to communicate to them so they might move their food and go to a different place so that they're going to be safe. Okay, how would you, if you've got all the sort of super superpowers you can have, how would you communicate to those ants that you should go, they should go and put their food elsewhere? You communicate with them. You'd uh, use words. You'd you'd have a superpower of being able to talk to them if, in ant language, if you like. You'd speak to them in ant language, whatever language it is they speak. That's the first thing you'd do. You'd use you'd use communication words, and you'd speak to them in ant language. And then the second thing that you'd do is you you become an ant yourself. That's the second way you you you, you communicate to them. You say, actually, yes, I'll use I'll use ant language, but actually, I can also become an ant. I'll become an ant, and I can communicate with them that way. And of course, special revelation is a combination, if you like, of those two things. It's a combination of the inspiration of the scriptures, that's if you like, ant language, and the incarnation of the Son, becoming an ant. Those are the two forms of, of special supernatural revelation, the inspiration of the scriptures and the incarnation of the Son. Inspiration of scriptures, incarnation of the Son. And as we think about that, what is it, how, how things described in the Bible, the Bible is described as God's Word. So Psalm 19 continues. If you look at how Psalm 19 continues, it talks about the law of the Lord. It talks about the statutes of the Lord. It, it talks about the Word as God's Word. The Bible is known as God's Word. But so too, of course, Jesus is described as God's Word. Famously, John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. So God's Word, the Bible... And God's word, Jesus. And what Scripture has done, if you like, Scripture has enabled Jesus to be presented to all people in all places at all times. So that's special revelation. That's the second one. The third type of revelation is progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Uh, Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 is going to come up on the screen. Uh, Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 says this. It says, uh, right at the start of the book of Hebrews, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. See, what's saying there is that God didn't just reveal everything at the very start of the world. As he created the world, it wasn't suddenly everything was revealed then, but it was progressive. Over time, more and more was revealed about who God was. And as you do, if you did a study of the Old Testament, you'd see that, how God is slowly revealing more and more of himself as you go through Scripture, as you get to Abraham in Genesis 12, as you get to Moses in Exodus. God is revealing more and more about who he is. And that verse is saying, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, so that supremely he is revealed 2,000 years ago, as God comes to this earth uh, in the person of Jesus. That's why if you, um, there's a verse, Matthew 11, verse 11 will come up on the screen. This, maybe this verse has sometimes confused you. What is going on in this verse? Um, and Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So first of all, he's saying, among those so far, John the Baptist is the greatest person that's ever been born. And I think he's saying that because he's saying John the Baptist is the last of all the prophets. He most clearly is revealing uh, Jesus and pointing people to Jesus and understanding Jesus because he is the last of all the prophets in, in the Old Testament before Jesus properly comes. 
But then he says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist because they're going on from that point and more has been revealed in Jesus uh, to us all now. We know more about God because of Jesus than any person in the Old Testament ever did. So it's progressive revelation. And then the final one, personal revelation. Personal revelation. You see, God, He can do all the revealing that He has done through nature, through Scripture, through Jesus. He can do all that revealing, but still, people's eyes can be closed to God. He can do all that revealing, but still, people's eyes can be closed. It's a bit like my older children, when they were little, used to play hide-and-seek with them. Uh, and they'd start counting. They'd close their eyes. They'd start counting. I'd go and hide, uh, and then uh, they wouldn't find me, and I'd come out and reveal myself to them, but they still had their hands over their eyes. Okay? They still had their own hands over their eyes. So I may have revealed myself, but they still needed to reveal their eyes so they could see. God has revealed himself, but still, as we know, many people in this world, they still need their eyes revealed to be able to see God. They need that personal um, revelation. The Holy Spirit, he is at work in Scripture, but he also needs to be at work in us, in you and me and every person on this planet. So we need both those types, different types of revelation to know God. Let me just show you a couple of verses of that. 2 Corinthians 4. Um, here's 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He's saying, our eyes were veiled, Things were veiled. It wasn't revealed, and then God shines his light in us, that personal uh, revelation. Or take another example in Ephesians, uh, that prayer, one of the prayers, the great prayers that Paul prays uh, for the Ephesian Christians. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, he may give you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. How does he describe the Spirit? The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. The Holy Spirit's work in us is to uh, reveal, to, to open our eyes to see the wonder of Jesus, to, to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So those are four types of revelation. Four types of revelation. Natural revelation, supernatural revelation, or general revelation, special revelation, progressive revelation, and personal revelation. What I'd love you to do is just turn to your next door neighbor um, and just say, what is the one thing that has been most helpful from what you have heard uh, so far on revelation? So just turn to your next door neighbor before we move on. Go. Two minutes on that. Um, fantastic. So we've thought about our first word, okay? Our first word was revelation. Uh, our first word was revelation. Uh, revelation shows us that God has taken the initiative to make himself known. Okay, we're now going to look at the next word. You'll see there on the handout, inspiration. Inspiration shows us how God has done that, how, has, how God has made himself known as we think about inspiration. So up on the screen is going to come one of the most famous verses when you're thinking about the Bible. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 
And that word God-breathed is God-inspired. God-breathed, God-inspired. But the issue is, how was God involved in the Scriptures? How was God involved in what we have here in the Bible? If you like, here are two extremes. Uh, one extreme is to say it was a sort of a method of dictation, okay, that um, God used people just like a keyboard, that their own personalities were not really involved, just God said, this is what you're to say, and, and out it popped, and there's no sort of um, human individuality in the Bible, that God just dictated what was to be said in the Bible to the human authors, and out it popped. And that, if you like, is the, is the Muslim view on their scriptures, that God just dictated the scriptures out. So that's one, one extreme, dictation. Or the other option is accommodation at the other end, that God just accommodated what he wanted to say through the limited, uh, limiting of, full, uh, of, of flawed human beings. So that actually the Bible isn't really God's word at all. It's just human words about God. So God just accommodated what he wanted to say uh, to flawed human beings. The Bible doesn't say either of those two extremes. It doesn't say it's dictation, and it doesn't say it's accommodation. Let's have a look by, if you turn over the page to the back of the handout, um, who said Psalm 110 verse 1? Here it comes up on the screen, Psalm 110 verse 1. It says, uh, Psalm 110 verse 1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, that's Psalm 110 verse 1. And it is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And what I'd love you to do, just with the person next door to you, is uh, you'll see on your handout, it's got three references in the New Testament. Acts 2, Hebrews 1, Matthew 22. Um, Just in twos, uh, just look up those references and see what it says in the New Testament about who said that. Uh, So you've got two minutes to do that. Go. Okay. Um, So, uh, if we put it up, let's just have a look. And uh, hopefully you've seen this. If we put up the first one uh, from Acts... Uh, it says there that David said that verse. Okay, so a human person said it. King David said it. For David did not ascend to the heaven, and yet he said, Psalm 110, verse 1. So David said it. Then you look at the next one, Hebrews 1, verse 13. Uh, to which of the angels did God ever say, Psalm 110, verse 1? So there he's saying, God said it. And then look at Matthew 22. Um, he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord, for he says, Psalm 110, verse 1. So the first time, David said it, human said it. Second time, God said it. Third time, they both said it, David speaking by the Holy Spirit. And I just wanted you to show you that and get you to see that, just to see the whole idea, if you like, of double authorship in the Bible, that is, the Word of God through human words. It is the Word of God through human words. Uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 21, uh, is a great example of saying that in the same verse. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you've got that that double authorship, that dual authorship um, of Scripture. There are loads in the Bible of different literary genre, uh, different emphasis in different books of the Bible. There's no obliteration of personality amongst the authors, and yet God spoke his words through the authors of the different books of the Bible's words in such a way that those words were simultaneously God's words and the author's words. So just as Jesus, Jesus the Word made flesh, he's 100% divine and 100% human, 
So similarly, Scripture, the word written down, is 100% divine and 100% human. Just as a slight detour, it's just worth thinking just for a moment about the canon of Scripture. So how was actually, how was it determined as to what actually belongs in the Bible? How was it determined what uh, is the Word of God as well as human words? You know, why isn't the Gospel of Thomas in here, for example? Those kind of things. Um, I'm not going to answer all your questions now, but let me just give you three minutes uh, on the canon of Scripture, and then I can tell you later if you want to come to me, and I'll give you some books that you can read more on it. But um, think about the Old Testament first, the Old Testament canon. Uh, Jesus never had any disputes with the Jewish people of his time over what books should be in the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. And that is confirmed by the quotations of Jesus and other New Testament authors when they quote the Old Testament. So according to one count, Jesus and the other New Testament authors who wrote the New Testament, they quote various parts of the Old Testament scriptures as divinely authoritative over 295 times. So 295 times they're referring to verses in the Old Testament and saying these are divinely inspired. But not once uh, do they cite any statements from any other books, such as the books of the Apocrypha uh, or any other writings, as having divine authority. So the Apocrypha, which you may have seen in some Bibles, it's sort of about another dozen books at the end of the Old Testament sometimes. It's never accepted by the Jewish people as Scripture. In the Apocrypha, the stuff that's useful, but it's not part of the Old Testament canon. And it's got some teachings in it that are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Then think about the New Testament. So the New Testament is the, is the writings of those first apostles in, in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. So it's people writing who have witnessed the risen Jesus or been very close to have witnessed him. Uh, just look at what Jesus says on the night before he dies on the cross. We're going to get two verses coming up. John, uh, this is the, in the sort of Last Supper discourse in John 14, John 16. Just let me read them. Uh, Jesus says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, or the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. So speaking to those disciples, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. A bit later, John 16. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he'll tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he'll receive what he will make known to you. The first thing to say is sometimes people just apply that straight to us today. But actually, if you look at the context, that is being said to those first disciples uh, in the Last Supper. And Jesus, if you look at what he's saying to them, he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to help you to do two things. Going to remind you of what I have said. So the Holy Spirit's going to help you in terms of remembering what's happened in the past, that first verse. And then the second, um, he will tell you what is yet to come. The Holy Spirit is going to help you understand what is coming in the future. So he's saying the Holy Spirit will inspire those first apostles looking back, remembering, and looking forward at the things to come. And uh, in uh, one place particularly, 2 Peter 3 verse 16, uh, we just see how Peter viewed Paul's writings on a par with the Old Testament Scriptures. He used, saw them as authoritative as the Jewish Bible. So look at this. Uh, Peter says, about, he's talking about Paul. He says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, true, uh, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other Scriptures. And that word Scriptures is the word used for the Old Testament. 
So Peter there is saying of Paul's writings, I view these as scriptures, as God-inspired uh, words. Um, as you know, if you've ever done Alpha, all the manuscript evidence and all that kind of stuff, uh, the books of the New Testament were widely known uh, very early uh, after um, Jesus had been uh, lived, died, and risen again, and those, uh, the, all the books of the New Testament were written. Uh, Justin Martyr, he lived between 110 and 165 AD. Uh, this is something that he wrote. He said, On the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together to one place of all those who live in cities or in the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And that is referring memoirs of the apostles, New Testament, writings of the prophets, Old Testament. So saying there, very, right at the, there, such an early time, and he's saying that is what happens each Sunday. They read the Scriptures. And what's important for us to recognize is the church didn't choose the canon arbitrarily, but it recognized the inspiration of certain books. So what I hope we see in this inspiration a bit is because the Bible, because it is the Word of God, we must read it as we read no other book. We must read it reverently. But the Bible, because it is the word of humans too, we must read it thoughtfully. We must analyze it. So we must read it reverently, and we must read it, read it thoughtfully. Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. He says, reflect on what I am saying. Reflect on it. Think about it. Think, use your brain. Critically analyze what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. We must read it reverently and thoughtfully. So yes, we scrutinize the Bible, but above all, we allow the Bible to scrutinize us. Martin Luther famously said to Erasmus around the time of the Reformation, he said this, he said, the difference between you and me, Erasmus, is that you sit above Scripture and judge it, whilst I sit under Scripture and let Scripture judge me. Now, I don't know if Luther was correct about Erasmus's view or not, but his point is correct. He says, you, Erasmus, you sit above Scripture and judge it, but I sit under Scripture and let Scripture judge me. You see, it is right for us to try and understand the Bible, to work at it, to understand its context, to understand its tricky bits, but we've got to come from a place of sitting under Scripture and letting Scripture judge us. So, where have we got to? We've seen revelation, uh, that is God's initiative in making himself known. We've seen inspiration, that is the process God employed to make himself known, the God-breathedness of Scripture, uh, the Word of God through human words. And authority is the result. So because Scripture is the revelation of the Father, by the inspiration of the Spirit, the Scripture, God's Word, has authority over us. I'd love you to think about this. In essence, you'll see the four possible authorities. The Scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Those are the possible authorities that we might have. Let me try and give you examples of those just to sort of make it clear. So uh, if you think, if, if someone thinks, they go, uh, the idea of having a God who is a God of judgment, that just seems ridiculous, that seems vile, I can't see that, it doesn't make sense for God to be a God of judgment, that is someone using their reason as their ultimate authority. They're thinking things through, and they say, I cannot understand how that works. My reason is my top authority. God cannot possibly be a God of judgment. That's putting reason as the ultimate authority. Uh, 
another person, they might go, um, I'm thinking of committing adultery. Uh, the Bible might say this, but I've fallen in love with this person. It must be right because I love them so much and they're so gorgeous and I think they're wonderful, so I'm going to commit adultery. That is their experience, their emotions. They're putting that as their primary authority. They're saying experience is my primary authority. Another example, think, uh, think of this church in Wilberforce's time, okay? Uh, there's Wilberforce campaigning for the abolition of the slave trade. I bet there were some people in this church at the time who were going, well, the church has always said slavery is okay, so why are we fussed about it being a problem now? Why are we trying to abolish it? It's okay. That's what the church has always said. Putting tradition as their primary authority. Now, please don't mishear me saying those three things, reason, experience, tradition, are always bad. Of course they are not. So we mustn't cut off our brains. We should think things through rationally. We mustn't cut off our feelings. So often we talk about needing, things need to go from our head to our heart. That is a good thing. We want to, our feelings are a good thing. Uh, we mustn't cut off from the past. There's so much to learn from the past. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't only begin his teaching when we right now investigate Scripture right now. No, we can learn from the past. We can learn from the traditions in the church. But sometimes our feelings are wrong. Sometimes our brains are wrong. Sometimes the church traditions get it wrong. And so our ultimate authority must be Scripture. Uh, I prepared this before today, as you've probably seen in the press. Uh, Billy Graham uh, died uh, today, uh, a most amazing man. Um, and I, I wanted to quote Billy Graham actually at quite some length um, from his autobiography, because I think this is really helpful, just on seeing this, uh, the authority of Scripture. This was a key point in Billy Graham's ministry. It came in the summer of 1949, and this is what he writes. It's going to come up on the screen. Let me read it. He writes this in his autobiography. He says, In the summer of 1949, my team and I were preparing for the most intensive evangelistic mission we'd ever attempted, a citywide outreach in Los Angeles, California. Although the press had ignored it, several hundred churches had come together to prepare and pray for the planned three-week-long event. We believed God had led us there, and many were praying. He would use the meetings to bring many to Christ. Just weeks before the mission was to start, however, I experienced a major crisis of faith, the most intense of my life. Some months before, a fellow evangelist whom I respected greatly had begun to express doubts about the Bible, urging me to face facts and change my belief that the Bible was the inspired word of God. Billy, he said, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. Your faith is too simple. For months, doubts about the Bible swirled through my mind, finally coming to a boil during a conference at which I was speaking in the mountains east of Los Angeles. One night, alone in my cabin at the conference, I studied carefully what the Bible said about its divine origin. I recalled that the prophets clearly believed that they were speaking God's word. They used the phrase, thus says the Lord, or similar words, hundreds of times. I also knew the archaeological discoveries had repeatedly confirmed the Bible's historical accuracy. Especially significant to me, however, was Jesus' own view of Scripture. He not only quoted it frequently, but also accepted it as the Word of God. While praying for his disciples, he said, Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. He also told them, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. Shouldn't I have the same view of Scripture as my Lord? Finally, I went for a walk in the moonlit forest. I knelt down with my Bible on a tree stump in front of me and began praying. I don't recall my exact words, but my prayer went something like this. Oh, Lord, there are many things in this book I don't understand. There are many problems in it for which I have no solution. But, Father, by faith, I'm going to accept this as thy word. 
From this moment on, I am going to trust the Bible as the Word of God. When I got up from my knees, I sensed God's presence in a way that I hadn't felt for months. Not all my questions were answered, but I knew a major spiritual battle had been fought and won. I never doubted the Bible's divine inspiration again, and immediately my preaching took on a new confidence. Amazing words from that man, died today, aged 99. And amazing, just to see the primary reason he gives, that should be our primary reason too. The main reason to give authority to the Bible is that as our top authority is because Jesus does. That is exactly what Jesus does, and we should too. So that is my primary authority. Um, quickly, there are, there are um, three other areas that it's just worth thinking on connected to the authority of Scripture. Firstly, the, the clarity of Scripture. Um, let me just put up a quote from Andrew Wilson, who's a, a New Frontiers pastor. Uh, some of you may know him. Uh, he says this. He says, I believe in the perfect clarity of Scripture, but I don't believe in the perfect clarity of human thinking. We know in part, but that doesn't imply God's Word is inconsistent or insufficient Rather, it implies that until Jesus returns, we are. What that's saying, the clarity of Scripture is saying that we can't be all postmodern and post-truth and say a passage of Scripture can mean whatever I, the reader, want it to mean. Now, there is one basic meaning of a passage of Scripture. And I work hard to read it, I work hard to understand it, and then I look to respond to it. You know, think of a, um, in a, in a, connect group context or whatever. People might say, um, you know, this is what this passage means to me. Now, is that a good thing to say or not? If they're meaning, this is how I apply this passage to me, that's a great thing to say. But if this is what this passage means to me, and it can mean this to you, and it can mean this to you, and it can mean this to you, I would say that, that, that is wrong. The clarity of Scripture is, there is one basic meaning of this passage of Scripture, but then there are lots of different ways that it can be applied into your life. That's the clarity of Scripture. Secondly, the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, what do I mean uh, by that? I, I, if the authority of Scripture is about saying don't subtract from God's Word, don't subtract from it, say it's not that important, it's not my primary authority, the sufficiency of Scripture is saying don't add to God's Word. It is totally sufficient. It's not sufficient, obviously, to tell me how to have a better golf handicap or whatever. It's not sufficient for all things, but it's sufficient for salvation. It is sufficient for salvation, sufficient for showing me to how to live a godly life. It is sufficient. What does that mean for us today? Um, I'm not saying that there is no prophecy today. I'm convinced that there is prophecy. People can have prophetic words. People can have tongues that are interpreted. People can have pictures and visions. But all those things, they are to be tested against God's Word. They're to be tested against Scripture. Up here will come um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Uh, says this. It says, don't quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. See, prophecy is a particular word at a particular time for a particular group of people, a particular person, whereas scripture is for all time and for all people. So no prophetic word that might uh, get um, prophesied should ever sort of be stapled into our Bibles to be seen on as a par with Scripture. The only place that you and I can be 100% sure that we are hearing the very words of God is in Scripture. 
That is the only place where we can be 100% sure we are hearing the very words of God. All prophecies, we need to test them against Scripture. Uh, John Wesley, let's have a quote from um, John Wesley. Uh, he, he said this, he said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. So I guess what I, what I want to say there in the sufficiency of Scripture is if we are desiring a revelation from God for me personally in the form of a prophecy or a picture for us, if we're desiring that more than desiring to sit under the authority of the Bible, then we're in dangerous ter- territory. Yes, we may receive prophecy. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. But Scripture is sufficient. Again, Hebrews, that verse right at the start of Hebrews shows us why more writings cannot be added to the Bible. Look at this again. He said, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, in these last days, this is the final word. He has spoken to us by his Son. So that's the sufficiency of Scripture, then the infallibility of Scripture. The infallibility of Scripture. Lots of long words for you this evening. Um, If the Bible is God's Word, it must be true and trustworthy, because God is true and trustworthy. I think it's worth saying two things on this. When we're thinking about that, that is Scripture as originally given. So, So we don't claim total authority for any particular translation of the Bible, but for the original text as written down by the author. As you'll know, probably there are copyist errors as well uh, in the manuscripts. And there are poor translations too. So it's Scripture as originally given and Scripture as correctly interpreted. So we need to work hard at working out a biblical framework for the interpretation of some tricky Old Testament passages. So, for example, I might read in the Bible, in, some, in Leviticus or somewhere, that it says, uh, go and sacrifice a bull and a couple of doves. Should I hop off to Moens right now and go and do that? Okay? No, because I've got to work out how did Jesus fulfill that. Jesus has become the once and for all sacrifice. So I've got to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. But what I'm saying is this. When people say, it doesn't matter about that bit of the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, or it doesn't matter about this bit because Paul wrote this, I want to say, no, it's all Scripture. It is all Scripture. It is God's inspired, authoritative Word. It's not us sitting in judgment of it and deciding which bits we like and which we don't. It's us sitting under Scripture and letting it judge us. Let me finish um, by... I've given you lots of information there, I know. Let me finish, but I want to give you three pictures about God's Word Um, just to try and hold on to at the end. And it's all from Psalm uh, 19 that I mentioned at the start. Um, If you put the first bit of Psalm 19 up. um, Psalm 19, that first bit, it says, um, you remember that's the general revelation bit. As you, the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay? If you look at that bit, what does it tell me about God, that bit? It says, the word God, it just uses the word God. And it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. So it doesn't tell you that much about God. It doesn't reveal that much. But then you get on to when it talks the next bit about, um, the next verses, Rory, would be great. Thank you. 
Um, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. As it talks about God's word, suddenly it doesn't use the word God. It uses the word Lord in capital letters, Yahweh. I am who I am. Uh, God's covenant name for himself. It's suddenly revealing. As we get into thinking about God's word, it's suddenly revealing more about God. And so the first picture I want you to hold on to um, is... Um, Abigail, can you, come, can you just come up for a second? Sorry. Um, thank you. You're a prop for me. You didn't know it, but you are. Um, um, the first thing I want you to think about um, in terms of... Um, come and stand here. Thank you so much. Um, no, can you put your glasses back on? Oh. Yeah, thank you. That's not, no, no. Um, with, are you, these are my, they may be reading glasses. Are they reading ones? Oh, they are. That's right. um, imagine she's short-sighted, all right? <laughs> um, uh, with her glasses on, if she was short-sighted, she would be able to see you all clearly. Okay, with her glasses off, if these were, if she was short-sighted, uh, <laughs> everyone would now be blurry. And so the first picture I want you to hold in your mind is what, about the Bible is to think of the Bible as a pair of glasses. Those those first verses of Psalm 19, all it reveals about as we look at creation, as we look at the world, it just tells us a lit, that God exists. But it doesn't tell us any more about that. But actually, when we put on, if you like, the spectacles um, of God's word. That enables us suddenly to see God more clearly and the world more clearly. So the Bible, if you like, is like glasses. It is like glasses. It helps us to see God clearly and it helps us to see this world clearly and how to operate in this world. So that is the first picture I'd love you to see when you're thinking about God's Word. What do you think about God's Word? It is like glasses. Thank you so much. Um, um, it is like glasses. It helps us to understand the world and understand God better for it not to be blurry. That's the first picture. As you look at on those, those um, words, here's the second picture. God's word is like a, um, a light. It's like a torch. I've got a rather small torch there. But it, God's word is like the famous verse, Psalm 119. Uh, my, your word is a lamp to my path and a light to my feet. Uh, there uh, in verse 8, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So the second picture of God's word is it's like a light for us. It illuminates about God. It helps us to understand life. It lights things up. So that is the second picture I'd love you to hold on to. What is the Bible like? It is like a light. It is illuminating um, life. It is illuminating God. It is illuminating how we go through life and getting the right path. And then the third uh, picture um, of what God is like, of what the Bible's like, um, if you go to the last bit, um, it, it talks about by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Uh, it talks about a, a challenge of Scripture, that Scripture is like a mirror to us. It's a slightly dodgy mirror, I agree. But that's, that's, that the Bible is like a mirror to us. As we look at the Bible, it is like a mirror to us. As we read it, it reflects back on us. It challenges us, and it comforts us. But as we read the Bible, it's like a mirror. It is saying to us, oh, there's this challenge. I need to change this. I need to change that. It is acting like a mirror uh, to us. Um, if you just go on to the last bit from James chapter 1, um, that's the, where it, the Bible, it actually talks about this, this mirror idea. You'll know it well. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And so that is how, what I'd love to, us to finish with. As we think about the Bible, we've heard loads about it, uh, would you, can I encourage you to think about the Bible as those three things, like glasses to help you see clearly, like a light to illuminate your path, 
and like a mirror to reflect in you and go, actually, I can see this bit of me. That's mucky. That needs changing. Actually, God's word should be impacting us. You know, you don't look in a mirror and you see you've got food all over yourself and you're a mess and you've got a green bit in your teeth or whatever and do nothing about it. You, you sort it out. Um, here's a question. Can you name one thing that you have done differently in the last month as a result of what you have read in God's Word? Can you name one thing that has changed in your life, one thing that you've done differently, thought differently, as a result of what you have read in God's Word? Because it should act like a mirror to us, and we should see ourselves in it and make changes as a result. Let's pray to close, and then everyone's coming in. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that it is you communicating to us, you revealing yourself to us. And we pray for each one of us that, like Billy Graham, you would help us to be confident in the authority of your word. And Lord, would your word, the Bible, would it be like a light for our path? Would it be like spectacles so that we can see clearly? And would it be like a mirror challenging us where each of us need challenge? And we pray this in Jesus' name.